You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. Cape Talk. Eusebius Makaisa. And it is a second installment, if you will, of the Literature Corner for today uh, because there's so many books that I need to get through before Christmas in terms of telling you what I've been reading, bringing you authors that do amazing, amazing, amazing creative work. And um, I'm delighted that we have such incredible South African talent that one can honestly punt without feeling like you're doing so out of nationalistic duty, but because out of genuine reading pleasure when you pick up uh, their work. I had not been... Um, and I'm not ashamed because now I've actually discovered his work. I bought his latest novel just two days ago. I can't wait to get stuck into that one. Uh, but I've, I've discovered the work for myself. Many of you already have of Mark Winkler. And uh, the first book of his that, that I picked up and I read it almost in one sitting um, on my holiday is an exceptionally simple theory of absolutely everything. I thought it was really, really beautiful. And um, I thought, well, once I am back at work, I better get Mark on the show if he is available to talk about this really, really beautiful novel. We'll give you a sense of the characters and the story. And um, and I'll tell you a little bit during the course of my conversation with him what it is about this book that I loved so much. And I have a couple of questions for him. If you have read an exceptionally simple theory. Tell me what you made of it. If you know Mark's work, if you've loved this book, any of his other work, you want to ask him questions, give us a call on 11 in Johannesburg. I would love to hear from you. When I mentioned the book a couple of times on my social media pages, many of you indicated that you had loved it as well. So I know some of you have read it. And if you are in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. Mark, thank you so much for joining us in our Cape Talk studios. Good morning, Eusebius. Congratulations on your excellent work, and my apologies that I've discovered your excellence so late. That's quite all right. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it absolutely, and I tell you, I tell you why because we've got a lot of work in this country that focuses a lot on poverty, on working class life, on black life, and there's something about Chris Hayes, the Capetonian architect, who's about to turn forty. And I'm in my late 30s, so that also resonated with me. That's really quite interesting. Can we start off before we explore the themes and the other elements of the writing process, just giving my listeners a sense of the basic storyline? Well, Chris is a very successful and very wealthy architect living in his little white Cape Town bubble. Um, And he has his own issues, you know, dealing with a sense of rootlessness um, not really belonging. He even uh, lacks a leg. So he has only one leg and has to hobble around on crutches. Yep. Um, just to kind of drive home his sense of not being grounded, you know, in his, in his, he's a liminal character in his society, in his country, in his social life, in his work life. And it's quite interesting because he's at a stage in his life when a lot of questions from an existential point of view suddenly confront yourself. There isn't just the fact that he's always had to live with the fact that as someone who has disabilities, literally not grounded and also existentially. There's also an interesting part of this story that has to do with his own origins. Just talk to us about that and, and why it is that you set out to explore someone that might have been adopted and their relationship with gaps in the story about about their own past. Mm, um the adopted thing was quite personal because I'm adopted myself. Mm. And um, I think, it, you know, many, many adopted children feel a sense of not loss, but uh, maybe not quite belonging. And I I kind of expanded that and explored that in Chris Hayes' life. And he reaches a point in his career, in his personal life, where 
this is becoming ever more important to him, and he decides to actually do something about it and try and track down his biological parents. And what he finds is perhaps not what he expected to find at all. The characters in the book are fascinating because the book doesn't read like a story of a bunch of people that are angsty in Cape Town. They get on with their life, and from the outside, these would be characters that many of us who don't live their lives will immediately think, oh, well, you've got a nice life as Chris. Uh, you've got this company. You've got a wife. You've got a, you know, You've got a son that does all sorts of things, eventually becomes a gym fanatic, runs around, tries to become buff. You've got friends that go way back in terms of who the family friends are. When there's a special birthday party, there's a massive celebration between the between the friends. And, and what I thought you achieved quite nicely, uh, Mark, is to, to present how if you scratch just enough beneath suburban life, you can actually find the internal struggles of people whose lives, if you haven't lived them, may look quite idyllic from the outside. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I think people have a natural tendency, or some people, to make themselves miserable no matter what their situation is. Hmm. And it might sound, sound strange to play up these very privileged people in terms of their own misery, a lot of which is self-made. And, I, I mean, a working title for the book was actually Private Lawns at one stage, where, um, you know, everything's kind of hidden behind fences and behind beautiful leafy trees and that sort of thing. And what goes on there is actually maybe not always worth worth envying and worth wishing to be part of, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And one, you know, one, one of the, the – there's so many bits in the in the story where the question of your late 30s and becoming 40 is something that you focus on. What did you want to explore in that regard? Because it does seem to me just if one draws a narrative arc of the average middle-class person's life, that there's something particularly about the 30s. And I've had this conversation with, with my listeners so many times, and I often find that some of my listeners who are in their 50s or 60s seem to be more settled with the fact that at some point you're going to be dead. You may as well get on with living. And then you have people in their 20s and their teens who live as if they are immortal. But there's something really fantastic that is a gift to to novelists, it seems, about characters who are particularly in their mid-30s, who are approaching 40. What is it about that that particular time in the life of so many people that makes for the kinds of themes that you tease out in this novel? I suppose the cliche is the, the midlife crisis, you know. But the, I think the reality is that once you get to being on the cusp of 40 or thereabouts, you do question the life choices you've made, whatever they've been, you know, ha- has it been the best path that you've chosen to follow? Have you have you done the best possible thing with your life? And I think because the choices are ultimately infinite, it's it's very easy to doubt yourself. And I think you also begin to, as you say, unlike in your 20s when you think you're immortal, you begin to have a sense of your mortality and that, you know, the show's not going to go on forever. And, you know, I, I think it's a kind of universal theme that people around about that age start questioning the smallest to the biggest things in their lives, which also tends to make them, like Chris Hayes, exceptionally self-centered and almost completely out of touch with what's going on around him because he is so selfish, I think, in his pursuits. 
He is selfish, but he's also, and I, and I suppose this is part of the point of, of us often projecting what goes on behind private lawns, behind high walls. He is selfish in, in his pursuits in many respects, but he also is incredibly vulnerable, isn't he? And it's that kind of complexity in a lot of professional suburban middle-class life that doesn't often get depicted because we often think about people who are who seem to be getting on with running a firm, with being a CEO, as simply going through the hurly-burly of, of middle-class uh, corporate life, for example. But actually, he simultaneously, as you have described him, but I find him as a character, to also be, be, be full of all sorts of vulnerabilities. Yeah, he's a flawed character. You know, he's not a complete caricature. He has, I'd, I'd like to think, quite a lot of depth to him, and a lot of those center around his doubts and his own insecurities. You know, he's completely unsure what to do with his teenage son, how to address the issues his kid is facing. He doesn't know what to do about his marriage that's falling apart. Mm. And um, I think people in his kind of social strata feel, especially as, as white people, and we can talk about this just now if you'd like, but I took a lot of flack because of the setting and the, the social milieu that the, the novel is set in. Um, I think a lot of people in the corporate world, business owners, white business owners specifically are, f are feeling a bit rattled you know they don't feel properly grounded properly secure in the future for whatever those reasons might be in the country political social economic whatever and it's funny that some people would give you flack for 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 the setting um i was saying to a friend of mine yesterday who was asking me to recommend which of books that I've read, recently read I think he will enjoy because I know his taste, that actually one of the things that I loved about this book is precisely the setting. Um, and I just made a similar point uh, to uh, Charles Johan about, about Canary. In the 1980s, for, for many white people, black people were extras in their lives. Mm. And so you can either ask a writer to write something that doesn't exist because you want them to reimagine the relationship between you know, a marriage that is falling apart in suburban Cape Town with a white architect running his company, or you can have a writer do, which is what I think you set out to do, but you can set me straight here, who is just very honest about how certain kinds of lives play out. And um, and you can't engineer a, a social landscape that doesn't exist for the characters. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, I mean, I don't mean to sound cynical, but not everyone has the, the time or the inclination to be a bleeding heart, you know, and Chris, Chris is one of those people. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one scenario that you might recall where he, I think within a matter of four or five lines, touches on what on the, the Marikana shooting. Yes. And for him, it's just, it's just noise on the wind, you know, because yeah. he doesn't stop to actually examine what that means. And I think that there's a lot of people in that, in that strata of society whose lives play out against a very tragic and and much bigger dramatic backdrop than they're actually willing to admit. That's and, right, absolutely. And I think some, you know, I think a couple of people didn't get what I'd set out to do, which is fine because that does happen all the time. And those are the ones that criticize the book. You know, why is this all about a rich white and what about the rest of South Africa? And, but I think I've always believed that, you know, I'd like to think of myself as an, as an African writer because I've lived here all my life. Mm -hmm. And yes, I happen to be white, but there it is. But I think that, you know, we, we, as, as African writers, we should be telling the stories from our own villages, you know, mm. if you are trying to lay a story with any kind of authenticity. I agree. So totally, totally agree. Yeah. What yeah. I'm doing with my background, my social background is very different to, let's say, someone like Nikim Shlongo, you know, and Soweto under the apricot tree is a total different thing. It doesn't make one better or worse than the other. 
And unsurprisingly, your oeuvre will be a reflection of your own personal biography. And of course, the other weird thing about about critics in a country like ours where we're constantly falling over each other to be the most woke is that if you did set out to write black characters, then you'll be told, but how dare you write when you have so much experiential distance from what happens in Soweto about characters that are placed there. Um, so, you know, you tend to be damned if you do, damned if you don't, quite frankly, which means that all you have left is simply to write honestly. Well, that's right, you know, and, and also I have a day job because writers in South Africa don't really manage to pay the bills off mm. their sales. Mm. And the reality of that means that I don't have time to really immerse myself in anything outside of my little circle, you know, and to get involved with that. Mm. And I've, I really feel that the, the reader deserves a level of authenticity and a writer that they can believe in who's not Absolutely. pretending to be something or having experienced something that they haven't. Absolutely. 12 minutes before noon, if you've just tuned in, I'm in conversation with Mark Winkler, who is a South African writer, and I picked up uh, one of his books for the first time, really loved it. I've now bought another one. Can't wait to start that one over the next couple of days. But the book we're discussing now is his offering from a couple of years ago, An Exceptionally Simple Theory of Absolutely Everything. And if you've read this, or if you're familiar with his work more generally, you want to ask him a question, give us a call. Helen, good morning. Thanks so much for calling in. Hello, you see this. Hello, Mark. I, I knew the original Schultz. Mm. Mark, do you know who's speaking? Yes, I do. How are you, Helen? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. I'm Mark's cousin. And, Mark, I just want to say that I lend your books to all and sundry, and we think you have a wonderful eye for detail. You have a magical command of language, and I'm so, so proud of you. Keep thank on you so much. It. Thank you, Helen. Thanks so much for that. Much, much appreciated. We'll take a little bit of a break. If you want to talk to Mark, give us a call. I'm going to explore other aspects of this particular book and some of the other themes that I find amazing here. The, the wife of the architect, the distance between them, a marriage that is, in, that is in trouble. That will resonate with a lot of people, whether you're black or white. There are some universal uh, themes here just in terms of how tough it is to make certain kinds of lives work that you feel compelled to be living. The Literature Corner. Eight minutes before noon, we're just wrapping our conversation with Mark Winkler about his novel, An Exceptionally Simple Theory of Absolutely Everything, a really beautiful exploration, uh, exploration of suburban life, of middle-class life, of relationships in lives that appear from the outside to be going well from a material point of view. Someone is a professional. They seem to be uh, married to someone who is wealthy. You can go off in the morning and go to the gym. You've got enough money to send your kids to good schools. Well, sometimes it looks all idyllic and hunky-dory from the outside, but if you live those lives on the inside, and this book gives you a vantage point from the inside, then actually there's a kind of gap, um, as I said on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, there's, there's, a, there's a meaning gap between um, flourishing philosophically, which most of these characters are not doing, they're not living flourishing lives, but they do live lives that many of you and I might regard as, that's a nice life to live. And um, the truth of the matter is that, and this is universally true, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a degreed professional or haven't had much formal schooling, you can still have incredible inner turmoil and conflict, and that's really what I love so much about this book. Mark, can we talk a little bit about um, about the relationship between Tracy and Chris? And that's quite interesting because Tracy, um, I, I wonder how many how many <laughs> how many wives who read the book might recognize themselves in Tracy. There's an incredible distance between her and and Chris. And that, too, is recognizable, isn't it? I mean, the marriage is in trouble in part because this man is so wrapped up 
in his own career as someone who's running uh, this firm as an architect that you might have enough money for your wife to be able to do all sorts of kinds of things, go on a spending spree, including when she eventually is cheating on you. But um, she might be cheating with another man, but you are cheating on her with your obsession with your own career. Uh, just give us a little bit of a, a meditation on, on how distant that relationship is and how you conceptualize Tracy. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the marriage began, I guess, as most marriages do, a very sympathetic relationship with a, a a couple that was very warm to each other and as you say as chris's obsession or preoccupation grew with his with his business and growing the the material aspect of their lives i think tracy essentially gets bored you know and the person mm -hmm. that she cheats on chris with purposefully has no money he's just giving her that 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 thing in her life you know he's filling that huge gap that chris has kind of forgotten to follow through with through the years of marriage and I think that that's a broad theme about marriage as well. Marriage is not something that's going to take care of itself. It's something that needs to be actively worked on if it's going to be successful. Like anything else, it's, you expect success out of. Yeah. His relationship with other women, Chris, that is, is also, of course, an important part of the book. Whether we talk about the adoptive mother uh, who goes senile. Um, and the search then for what the truth is by getting even a private investigator involved. I'm very curious when I, when I discovered that this is in part deeply personal for you, um, what it was like from a writing point of view to tap into themes that are that close to home, and then particularly, then more specifically in the plot of the story in the novel, uh, just talk to us a little bit about how interesting it is that, you know, no amount of money in the world uh, can fill that gap that you might have about big questions, existential questions about your own past. Mm. I think that you know, as I've as I went on since I started writing and the subsequent books to this, um, as I say, things need to be authentic. But also, what I've learned is to take the more mechanical aspects of those experiences and then really exploring them to say what would be the worst possible scenario in this thing. What would be the weirdest possible outcome of a very realistic scenario. So that's where I ended up with Chris's biological mo mother and the character that she is that he briefly meets and then she walks away from him again. And Chris's life is kind of, his relationships with women have been like that, whether he's caused it or not, where the women in his life tend to kind of walk, turn their back on him as, you know, through senility his adoptive mother does, through adoption his biological mother does, and his wife does as well you know and the novel without putting any spoilers in here but it ends up with him about to embark on a new relationship and kind of raises the question is he going to actually be able to sustain this yeah. or is he going to get um, kind of misdirected and wander off again mm. Mm. disability is not explored very often particularly in a strong protagonist there's nothing besoired or belabored about the way in which him being one-legged features as, an, as a part of his identity. I mean, there's a lot one can do with that allegorically. As you've said, he's literally and in search of meaning, not yet grounded throughout the book. That's kind of like what the search is about. Um, but, but I also wanted to know what inspired you to explore that reality we we live in a world where we've hardly solved racism and sexism 
and far low down on that list of isms, I'm sure you'll agree with me, Mark, is ableism, uh, both in the arts, let alone in our everyday interactions, whether we find people with disabilities attractive, can imagine having sex with them, whether we find them sexually attractive. How did you think about the character in that regard when there isn't... Um, when there isn't, when a lot of people are squeamish, wrongly so, but there's a genuine squeamishness, and to be honest about it, to even think about people with disabilities in kind of like sexual terms. And in that sense, I actually found uh, Chris to be very refreshingly confident, uh, even about himself in various parts of the book. At other times, he's vulnerable. But but I wondered how you th- thought about that when when you conceived of him. Um, there's a couple of different levels of that. First of all, the, the being, being on one leg and crutches was a very simple metaphor for his feeling of rootlessness. You know, he's not literally not touching the ground properly. Um, and then, for me, I've always been interested in, in what, I guess, heterosexual, normal white people, as we call ourselves or think of ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of take for granted is, or what we tend to overlook, is any sense of other, whether that's sexuality or disablement or color or yeah. creed or religion or whatever. And Chris experiences this for himself, where he senses someone, one of the characters, not quite trusting him as an architect because he notices that he's missing a leg. So I think we do that as a kind of very base, very unfounded instinct, where often we will judge people based on something or someone's ability based on something that has absolutely nothing to do with that. So missing a leg and intellect or sexuality and the ability to... I don't know, walk a tightrope, if you know what I mean. So mm. I think we're very guilty mm. of, because sometimes mm. those things are just visually the most obvious. So we relate it instinctively, right. misdirectedly 